SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Elizabeth Young of SoFi. Brilliant individual that she is. Typically, the great Dan Nathan joins us, but he is in parts unknown right now. I would tell you where he is, but as I just mentioned, he's in parts unknown. Later, we're going to be joined by Greg Friedman of Peachtree, so stick around for that. Elizabeth, how are you? Good morning, Guy. All is well? All is well in the young All is well. In the All is well household. when I'm here. All is well when I'm here on a Monday with you and a faux hawk. I do have the faux hawk going. I wish people could see that. It looks fantastic. I think... Um, one of these days on CNBC's Fast Money, I'm going to sport it just because and see what kind of response we get from the audience. Because, listen, I think people never know what they're going to see from me or hear from me. And you got to keep changing things up. You got to keep it interesting. That's the beauty of TV, right? The unexpected. I think what you should do is go into the makeup room and ask them to style it that way. Don't even do it yourself. I want you to sit down in the chair and say, please give me a phone today. Well, I won't Complete share with people face. how I typically get it to look like this. It entails spitting in my hand, rubbing it Gross. together. And the, but, but listen, people don't, they're not here for that. They're here for the market. And it's actually, you know, although obviously earnings are pretty much done. I think we have Disney this week. We have PayPal, some other sort of laggards. I think Wynn resorts tomorrow after the bell. But we have some economic data this week, and I think it's going to be interesting. I think CPI on Wednesday, core CPI people will be looking at, producer price index on Thursday. Uh, those are the things that I'm going to be looking at top of mind. I still think inflation's a problem. I think the Federal Reserve acknowledges that as well. The market doesn't seem to care right now. It's interesting, though. You know, I went away on vacation a couple of weeks ago. The S&P on that Friday closed around 4135, and lo and behold, I look up at my fact set machine and where's the S&P 500? 4135. So 
effectively much ado about nothing over the last few weeks. But one thing does stick out to me, and this is something you've talked about. The small caps is measured by whatever you want to look at. The RUT, the IWM has not been performing all that well over the last couple months. That's right. And I love a small cap, but they are also really good signals. So even when they're doing poorly, you have to pay attention to what's happening. And what we know about the market in the last few weeks is that it's been, again, led mostly by large cap stocks. So when you don't see things like small caps participating, I will tell you this, it's not usually an indication of a strong and enduring up market. So so definitely something to keep an eye on, as is the breadth that's a that's with a D involved, mm-hmm. the breadth mm-hmm. that we are seeing or lack thereof in the market that continues to actually deteriorate when you look at things like number of stocks above their 200 day moving average and so on and so forth. And, you know, I've, I've made this analogy a couple times. A team can still be good if they just have that one star player. But if they lose that one star player, you got to make sure that the rest of the team can make up for it. And that's sort of the situation that we've been in right now. So when you look at what the index is doing, particularly the S&P, on just a top level, if you look at the line of the S&P, it looks like it's doing great, looks like it's set to rally, looks like it's resilient. And then you peel back the layers and there's really not a ton of strength underneath the surface. So pay attention to those small caps, pay attention to how many stocks are participating in up and down days, and also pay attention to the volume that's going on. We're getting these little bursts of volume that are coming just kind of very quickly day by day, but also not persistent. So this again, I think it it breeds a range. And as you mentioned, we continue to be stuck in this same range. I am surprised every week that there hasn't been news that has pushed the S&P out of either the upside or below the downside. But here we are. We just continue to grind away. And, and I've said this before, it's purgatory of the worst kind. No, no question. And these regional banks, we're seeing a bounce today in a lot of these stocks, which makes sense. I mean, some of them were just sort of sold first, asked questions later. So I, we've never, I don't think we've ever posited that all these regional banks are going away. But what I've said, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, and we can drill down a little bit here. The way I look at it is, you know, when small business is such a huge component of our economy, I think you can probably tell me exactly what it is, but I think small businesses employ north of 70% of the people in this country. And they're, they're the backbone of the economy in a lot of ways. And their lifeblood is effectively regional banks. These regional banks understand what's going on in the small towns and their communities, and they can service these small businesses. So if regional banks are compromised, it stands to reason small business will be compromised. Now, somebody will pick up that slack. The bigger banks will, but at what cost really it comes down to and who's going to pay that cost? And will these small and mid-sized businesses be able to, I guess, sort of take in and integrate the, the what are going to be higher costs associated with that? And what's the impact on the economy? Now, we've talked about it. It doesn't happen tomorrow. But these are the ramifications, I think, of what's going on. And to look past it, and I'm not suggesting you are, I think is foolish. So here we are with an S&P again, 4135 sort of biding its time. But underneath the surface, there's so many things to be concerned about. For me, that's at the top of the list right now. Yeah, well, and something that I, I want people to always remember, we talk about small caps 
in this context, but we're only talking about the small caps that are publicly traded. There are a ton of small businesses out there that are not publicly traded, that do not get represented in the market. And the stock market is not the economy. And you're right, Guy, most of the employees in the United States are employed by small and mid-sized businesses. So as those companies start to face headwinds, contraction and capital that's available. You have to think about it this way too. Small businesses are generally either just marginally profitable if they've started out or maybe not quite profitable yet. So they need financing in order to grow. If they can't access that financing or if they can't afford that financing given where rates are right now and given tightening credit standards, they're going to struggle to grow. They can't invest back into their business. They have to make cuts and so on and so forth. And that's some of the stuff that I think is happening under the surface that we just don't really get a pulse on when we're looking at the stock market itself. One of the things that happens today that is not really quite in headlines yet, but it might be later on, it happens at two o'clock today, we are going to get the senior loan officer survey. That's something that basically reports on the state of financing the state of credit that's available. I don't expect it to be sending off alarm bells this time, but I do expect it to send sub signals that credit has tightened, availability has tightened, which is the same thing that we've heard from small businesses, many of them having reported last month that loans were, I think they're about 9% more uh, that reported this, that loans were harder to get than they were a year ago. So this is kind of a slow burn that is happening beneath the surface, out of the headlines, out of the stock market, but eventually will come up and, you know, in maybe a couple months from now, we'll be sitting on this podcast explaining what happened and when it started happening and how it affects the rest of the economy. We just haven't quite seen it come through in all the numbers yet. No, and I think that's important. I mean, I'd love to be a senior loan officer. I guess at my age, that would, would I would probably be in line for that. <laughs> Uh, but you know, what do I know? Who knows? I mean, I guess that that stands to reason that there's a senior loan officer thing at two o'clock. Maybe the the junior guys and gals get to do theirs on like a Thursday or something. Thursday, I don't know about you, but Thursday when I was in college was that was the big day. Now the world's changed significantly since then, but it was Thursday nights for me because a lot of people didn't have classes on Friday. I, you know, be that as it, I'm not really sure why I went there. I just was thinking about the junior loan officers. But here's one for you, and this is something I've been struggling with. Earnings were effectively over, as I said. We have some companies around the edges. Disney's, I guess, important, PayPal, but it's not going to move the needle necessarily on the broader market. People are saying that you know earnings this quarter weren't as bad as expected. They were not great, but they weren't as bad. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I would push back and say, okay, it wasn't this quarter, it, but at some point, this all things this is all going to come home to roost. So, as much as people want to say it's a good thing that earnings weren't as bad, I would say it's not necessarily a good thing because we're just prolonging the inevitable. Thoughts on that? I would say it's a good thing today because we didn't have the surprise to the downside yet. If that's coming. Some of the things that I think are happening, and, and for sure this happened in the first quarter because we heard it directly from companies' mouths, are that they've passed through a lot of these price increases and they've maintained those price increases or even plan to increase prices more by sacrificing the amount that they're selling. And that can be services or goods companies, right? So if you're an auto manufacturer, maybe you say, I know we're going to sell fewer cars, but we're going to keep prices where they are or maybe even raise prices and it still protects their margins and if you're an investor or you're an analyst or anybody it's it's pretty easy to look at a company and realize that their prices have gone up a certain percent 
their margins have also gone up a certain percent. And in some cases, that percent is the same, in which case you realize that price increases are just kind of padding the earnings for a lot of these companies. And if you particularly, I know you've talked about this guy, something like a consumer staples company, right? You name the product, I don't know, toothpaste or toilet paper, whatever it is. You're not going to stop using that stuff. So staples companies have gotten away with I know. I see your face. If people could see Guy's face when I said you're not going to stop using that stuff, please don't stop using the paper products, Guy. Those companies have gotten away with passing through price increases, and that's going to be okay until it's not. And I think when it becomes not okay is if the economy really does slow down, if consumers really do slow down their spending, then competition takes over. This is just economics. Competition takes over, and you are once again competing with other companies in your space for volume. So then it matters. Then you cut prices to increase your volume and so on and so forth. So I think there's a cycle that will come. I don't know if it happens this year or next year, but a cycle that will come where companies will have to start cutting prices in order to compete. And that's where some of this margin expansion sort of falls apart. I had to go to a uh, Costco over the weekend uh, in Washington, DC, and I noticed there was an older couple older than I am. So let's say they're in their late 70s, 90s. early 80s, and they were buying like a gross of toilet paper. And to me, that is the ultimate expression of wishful thinking. You know, at that age, you should probably buy it by the roll, by the gross. But hey, what do I know? Maybe they're uh, eating healthily as it may, as it may. You know, and I actually, I complimented them. I'm like, you know, God bless you both, you know. Unless they have a big brood at home, I'm not sure. But again, to to your point, when you see what you're speaking about is when companies talk about organic growth of 11, 12, 13%, and I've said it for a while, for a company like Coca-Cola or General Mills, any of those names, organic growth is just code word for we're passing on our costs to the consumer. And that's really what it is. So if you really want to get a handle on what real inflation is, I, again, in my opinion, just take a look at some of the earnings reports we've seen over the last few weeks. That's the true mark. But I've also said this. Um, everybody seems to think, and we're in May right now, the back half of this year, and I think the market is pricing into a certain degree, we're going to see sort of Fed rate cuts. And I'm curious as to your thoughts. We talk about it on Market Call a lot, but I'd like to talk about it here. What are the reasons, you know, what possibly could be the reasons for a rate cut in the back half of this year with an unemployment rate that's effectively at 3.4%, which is as low as we've seen in quite some time? Nothing's broken in the economy yet. The stock market seems to be fine. What would be the reasons um, that the Fed would cut in the back half of the year other than something catastrophic happening, which would not be supportive of equities? So I think the aspiration is that when the Fed starts cutting rates, they're going to do it with the intention of getting back to what they deem neutral. And their intention this whole time was to get rates to a sufficiently restrictive level. You can define that a number of different ways. Maybe it's Fed funds rate above the 10-year. Maybe it's Fed funds rate above inflation. Whichever way you want to define it, we are now there. We are restrictive. And then the intention was for them to hold rates at that restrictive level until inflation started to really get back down towards their target. Their own prediction of where inflation will be by the end of this year is not at target. 
So the expectation that they might cut rates in the back half of this year is not a positive one. And in my head, what it would suggest, I mean, there's a couple of things, a couple of things that I think would, would pretty clearly indicate that they should cut. Uh, let me start this actually with something else. The thing that is going to indicate that they should pause is that the near-term forward spread is inverted as much as it is. That is their indication that a recession is either imminent or a really high risk. The near-term forward spread is, is inverted triple digits at this point. And that's the three-month today versus the three-month, 18 months from now. So the market is expecting cuts. The two things that I think would cause them to cut before the end of this year, before inflation gets back down to target, number one would be that the capital markets stop functioning the way that they should. Okay. That doesn't mean that we have a drawdown necessarily. I don't think a drawdown would scare them. I don't think us getting back under 3,800 would scare them. I'm not even sure 3,500 would scare them. That's not what's going to change it. It's if the market doesn't function as it should. So think back to what happened in March of 2020. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen again, but think back to what happened in March of 2020 in the bond market. The bond market was not functioning as it should. It should be the most liquid market in the world, both corporate bonds and treasury bonds did not work. So there would have to be a real issue with the capital markets and not functioning. The other thing that I think could cause them to cut is if you saw some serious weakness in the labor market, because remember their dual mandate, the other side of that is employment. So if they start to see serious weakness in the labor market, that probably causes them to cut as well. Now, play that all the way through, what would cause serious weakness in the labor market, right? Obviously, some weakness in the economy. So chances are, by the time it gets to the labor market, we've already seen it in a number of other ways. For me, you know, you talk about the bond market not functioning. I mean, that's been going on for quite some time. The volatility in the bond market has been unprecedented. There's this move index that we talk about from time to time, and I'm not looking to make people's eyes glaze over, but there's clearly been some instability there. You've also said correctly that you weren't, you obviously, listen, you were concerned when you saw twos, tens move out to more than 100 basis points. But then when you said, um, what you're really concerned about is not that it continues on that trajectory, is when it snaps back the other way. And we did see that snap back, and it seems to have found a home at current levels. But I think you would submit that that's not as encouraging as a lot of people would think. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you know what? Here, I will say this. It's kind of encouraging for the banks. And look, we're grasping at, let's let's think about anything that's encouraging for the banks right now. I mean, the headlines have not been great, uh, and I don't think the fear is over. So it's encouraging not only for the situation that we're in with many of the regional banks, so it's helping their mark-to-market portfolios, but it's also encouraging because as, as the yield curve becomes less inverted or, or if it returns to a steeper yield curve, that typically is just you know traditionally good for the bank's net interest margin. So over time, that is good for financials. I don't think today is that day, but just to kind of point something out that's positive. The reason that it's snapping back and re-steepening is much like what I just mentioned with the, the three-month, three-month, right, with the near-term forward spread. Because the reason that it started to steepen again is that the two-year came down. Well, the two-year came down because people started to expect the Fed to cut rates. The, people expect the Fed to cut rates because there's going to be a problem. The 10-year also came down from its highs this year, but the two-year came down more. So that's where the, the inversion became less steep, uh, and you've got this sort of you know back to a much more shallow inversion. 
but still inverted. And the other thing that I would mention is if you look over history and look, history is a guide, it's not necessarily going to repeat, but over history, when the twos tens inverts, if it's a decided inversion, which this one was, the length of time that it usually takes for a recession to start after that inversion, because remember that inversion is usually a signal of a recession, the shortest amount of time it takes is about six or seven months. Sometimes it's taken up to 18 months, but we are right in that window where it's been more than six or seven months where it's you're on sort of recession watch. And I often use tornado analogies because I'm from Wisconsin and that's what we had there. A tornado are, watch. Are there tornadoes in Wisconsin? Hold on, oh, yeah. hold please. Twisters. Are there? Twisters. Twister. Yeah. That was a good movie, mm -hmm. by the way, Twister, with mm -hmm. um, Bill Paxson, I believe, was in that movie. I and have no idea. Okay. Then please we continue. Have, How can you, you have you no like, idea? That was one of the that was I one know, of those great movies where, you know, those you, you actually see the twister and it was a it was a, a five on the twister scale. You were not interested in that clearly. No, because we got the real thing. You could like sit in your driveway and people really do this. My parents do this. You like open the garage door during a big thunder boomer. That's what I call them, and just sit in the garage and watch the storm happen. And you could watch funnel clouds. They might or might not touch down. I mean, it's like this is real stuff. And thunderstorms are something I still miss. Every every once in a while, you get a little bit of thunder in New York, but it's nothing compared to the Midwest. Anyway, Please continue. this tornado analogy. A tornado watch meant that the conditions were present for a tornado to form. A tornado warning meant that one had been spotted, meaning of either a funnel cloud had been spotted or one had actually touched down. I think we are somewhere between watch and warning here. I, I guess a recession had been spotted in the first half of last year. I think that was a fake out. I don't think it really counted. But we are at, at very least in a recession watch situation where the conditions are present. Many, many of the conditions are present. So just be careful claiming that everything is going to be okay because earnings season wasn't as bad as expected or because the consumer hasn't stopped spending yet or companies are still passing through prices or the unemployment rate actually ticked down. Guess when it hits lows? Right before it spikes back up and goes to a new high. So, you know, this could be a situation where we are waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and trust me, I feel like we've been waiting forever to get some kind of certainty here. But I do not think that we have an increasing number of positive attributes about this market or the economy. No, and listen, Mike Wilson, you know, was talking about this as well, and I'm quoting now, many of the leading macro data points that we focus on have fallen in recent weeks and are not pointing to a similar run rate in terms of strength looking forward over the next several months. So basically saying that the softer U.S. macroeconomic data suggests that the earnings trends will weaken in the coming months. And that's something that I obviously thought was going to happen sooner than it has. But again, to my earlier point, I don't necessarily know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. We've obviously pushed this out, but you know, this lag effect is obviously taking longer than I thought, but it almost by definition has to be coming to a theater near you. And if you put on top of that, you know, this debt crisis, I think there are four people uh, going to see President Biden tomorrow at the White House to sort of hash this out. But we're getting precariously close to that June 1st sort of, I don't want to say drop dead date because that's high, you know, it's a bit of hyperbole and I don't want to go down that route. But, you know, with each passing day, this gets more and more consequential. And again, I don't think why the market's looking at that either. 
No, it's funny. We're talking about it, but not looking at it so much. One of the things, though, that the market has started to show is if you look at credit default swaps uh, on treasuries, those have gone up quite a bit. So uh, especially if you look at just the one month version, the one or two month, it's, they've gone up a lot, meaning there is a non-zero chance that there's some sort of default. Now, if I were a betting woman, I would say that I think they probably resolve it and raise the ceiling, but it may not be without volatility leading up to it. And it may happen in the 11th hour and it may happen over a weekend, which seems like is how we always do these things, right? We finish the market on a Friday and then we all just sort of bite our fingernails until we get the news Sunday night at 10 PM or whatever the case may be. That could send us into a pretty volatile period leading up to that to find out that on top of the concerns that we're having with the regular economy, we've also got government concerns and, and debt concerns uh, at the Treasury. So it's not a great setup. It, maybe, maybe this is why people say that thing about May. I don't know. I'm not going to say it, but don't there's say a thing. It. Don't say it. Thing about, don't well, say you know, it. It's, it's that April showers bring May flowers. So we're blooming right now. That's no, no is. question. And we got a lot of showers in April, thank goodness, because our reservoirs have been filled. And out west, I think, you know, a drought that they were concerned about, I don't want to say it's been mitigated entirely, but clearly that's helped. But again, that's sort of off topic for me. I want to get back on topic for a second. This is something I've said for a while. Again, I'm not smart enough nor humorless enough to be an economist, but, you know, we have CPI on Wednesday. I would submit, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, to me, CPI equals inflation. We have PPI on Thursday. To me, PPI is more of an economic indicator. How's the economy doing? And that's obviously on Thursday. You could have a hot CPI and a weak PPI, and people will say this sort of they're offsetting each other. My pushback would be, all it means is inflation is still a problem, and if PPI comes in softer on Thursday, it means the economy is sort of grinding down. And that's almost a definition of stagflation. How do you look at those two things? Yeah, this is a big week, a real big week. So Fed meetings are my Super Bowl. CPI and PPI are like the playoffs. It goes in the opposite order this time. But on, Speaking way. of playoffs, by the way, uh -oh. the Milwaukee Bucks um, yeah. with the best record in the NBA this year, they fired their head coach recently. Yeah. Thoughts on that quickly? That. Uh, well, you know, I, I guess if if there's not a, I, I don't want to hurt Giannis's feelings. I mean, I don't want to say something like it was an unsuccessful season. I think it was a very successful season until the end. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, when you have an unsuccessful season until the end, or I'm sorry, a successful season until the end, somebody's got to go, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I grew up with a dad who's a coach. I feel like coaches get blamed for everything. I mean, I went through that as a kid, hearing all the things that he got blamed for. So I'm probably hesitant to blame the coach more than other people. There's the old adage, you can't fire the entire team. So somebody's... Right. And listen, in professional sports, by that definition, there's only one successful season. I mean, somebody's going to win the NBA championship under those guidelines, only one team is successful. The same with the other sports as well. I thought Giannis was very eloquent in his um, response to the questions he, he was, was asked. But, well, you know, once answer. again, we're off the rails. So you were saying yeah. okay, playoffs. Okay, anyway, CPI, and, PPI you know. are the playoffs. Okay, so here's the thing. This is also another indicator that if you look at, if you see PPI come in weaker and CPI come in higher, another indicator that companies have passed through prices. 
Okay. CPI is what the consumer is paying. PPI is what businesses are paying at the wholesale level or to buy the stuff to make their widgets. So if PPI is coming down, I think it means a couple things. It means that the input costs have come down. It also means that businesses are buying less or investing less because they're probably expecting to sell less, right? They're not building as much inventory. So if there are second order effects that you can think of and start to expect if PPI comes down. I think PPI is a good indicator of what businesses are expecting for activity. Now, CPI is expected to be flat in April. I thought we wanted it to go down. <laughs> so, so also not a good sign. And also what's expected is that core CPI, again, is supposed to be above headline CPI. Not a good sign because we know that the Fed is watching what they call the super core, which means that services inflation is still pretty high. And it means that we've got some sticky components that continue to be stubborn. So if CPI comes in as expected, maybe you don't have much of a market reaction because it's within expectations. But the actual signal is that it's not falling as quickly as it was, if at all, and it is pretty sticky. So that's something that I think is going to be really important to think about on Wednesday and something that we have to consider for the economy going forward, even if we're not seeing it in earnings and even if we're not seeing it in some of the other stuff yet. Front and center, before we get out of here, to me, you know, I'm not one of these tinfoil wearing people, although I never really understood what that meant. I guess when you put tinfoil on your hat, somehow you can speak to the aliens or something. Oh. I don't really know the thesis behind or that. Or get struck by lightning. Or or get struck by lightning, which, you know, listen, if you live out in the Midwest out there in Milwaukee, I mean, that could happen. You never know. A lot of open li It's funny, you know, I flew to, again, I'm off the rails, but I flew to Nebraska last week, as you know. There's a lot of open. I mean, when you're flying out there, man, it's just a lot of open land. Yeah. Yeah. It's flat. Yeah. It's that's why they call it the plains, the great plains. It was, I mean, it was, it's, you it's, just, it's windy this, there. It, there's, I, I think I've said this before. There's things that you learn growing up in a place like Wisconsin that you don't realize nobody else knows or these little sayings that you have, right? We grow a lot of corn in Wisconsin. And I used to look around. I still do it. I don't even realize that I'm doing it. And I'll know how the weather has been that year for the corn, because the corn is supposed to be knee high by the 4th of July. And knee if it's not, high knee high by the 4th of July. If it's not, it means they didn't get enough rain. If it's higher than that, great. Corn harvest is going to be good. But anyway, and of course, your height matters. I'm a little short, so knee high is easier to achieve for me. But let's say the average farmer, knee high by the 4th of July. That's the rule. It's interesting. And I've also heard, you know, as high as an elephant's eye, the corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And I find that fascinating because last I looked, unless you're at a freaking zoo, there are not a lot of elephants <laughs> in the Midwest. <laughs> so I don't really know where that comes from. That's tough to measure. <laughs> it's tough to measure. Tough to measure by any, by any stretch of the imagination. No, what I was going to say was gold market to me is telling a story. I'm pretty convinced the story they're telling is central banks sort of hedging their ineptitude. They continue to buy gold. I don't think people are looking at it. And maybe I look at it too closely. But when you see the price effectively just sitting at an all-time high here, does that give you reason for concern? Or is this one of those outliers you don't really pay attention to? No, I think it's reason for concern. I think it was it's an opportunity. I've been buying gold. I've I've suggested gold on CNBC. I know we've talked about gold here a lot. Here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with old faithful. 
we've gone through this period where people have claimed that crypto is the new store of value and then we watch it boom and bust two or three times over and over again. Old Faithful is still gold. And I'm not somebody who talks about gold very often. It's not in my natural vocabulary to just talk about shiny stuff, especially keeping actual bricks of gold in the basement, something like that. It's just not my thing. But in an environment like this, where you've got central banks around the world, most of which who have a policy rate right now above their own two-year sovereign debt, that's a situation where we've got a serious store of value issue. And there's a lot of currency volatility that has occurred and probably more that's going to occur. Gold is a good spot. My constitution I call Old Faithful as well, which is the reason I found myself <laughs> in Costco over the weekend. But that's neither here nor there. Check out Elizabeth Young on Twitter. You know where to find her, at Liz Young Strat. Her work is next level. I'm honored to be with her each Monday on Thursdays. And every once in a while, she jumps in to fill in. She is that type of person. Uh, when we come back, by the way, Greg Friedman, CEO of Peachtree, stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Greg Friedman is the CEO of Peachtree Group. He's successfully led Petrie in more than $7.9 billion in hotel acquisitions, investments, and development since co-founding the company. Greg has more than 23 years of hospitality experience with an emphasis on deal structuring and finance. Greg, welcome to On The Tape. There's this old saying in life, timing is everything. By the way, thanks for joining us on the On The Tape podcast, Greg Friedman. And in terms of what you're focused on at Petri, I don't think the timing could be that much better for joining us. But before we start, give us sort of a background, your background, and what's happening at Peachtree. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So personally, you know, I grew up in a family that owned hotel properties and my family owned a business that was real big in lending to commercial real estate assets, especially hotels. So personally, I grew up around the business, you know, went to school, University of Texas at Austin. When I graduated Texas, I went into banking for about 10 years. 
where I specialized in capitalizing and financing hotel projects and you know other commercial real estate projects before starting Peachtree in 2007. You know, my company, Peachtree, you know, we're an investment platform. So we invest across the lodging or hotel space, as well as other commercial real estate assets. You know, we invest both on the equity side where we acquire and develop those types of assets, hotel assets, as well as we invest on the debt side where we finance other ownership groups to go out and buy hotel assets, to buy, you know, if it's buying office buildings, buying, you know, multifamily or developing multifamily and so forth. So we finance, you know, all commercial real estate asset classes on the debt side. You know, we have a pretty diversified portfolio of investments, you know, again, both on the debt and equity side as it relates to commercial real estate. And we own a bunch of different companies that service our investments on the, um, the investments that we make through the different vehicles that we have. So we own a property management company, development company, lending platform, asset management company, as well as a couple other companies that help to you know, service and optimize the investments that we make. Greg, put some context around this. It sounds like you and your family obviously have been in this business for, for decades here. And what we just kind of lived through in every industry had fairly unique consequences of the lockdowns with the pandemic and the like. And, you know, it's interesting through the lens that Guy and I look at a lot of this stuff. We often think about what, you know, uh, sort of monetary policy actions, fiscal policy, and how that affects risk assets and markets. Give us a sense of just what 2020 meant for the commercial real estate market. And let's talk a little bit about what's changed and, and how you guys must have seen just really tons of opportunities as it relates to on the back side of this. Just give us a sense of like what the last three years has been like for Peachtree and just the commercial real estate business in general. It's been a roller coaster the last three years. So the pandemic obviously didn't impact all asset classes the same. Um, so there's definitely a differentiation or separation between the different commercial real estate assets and how they were impacted by COVID. You know, hotels, which we primarily invest into, on the, especially on the equity side, you know, we were hugely impacted back in March of 2020. So we went from being at a, you know, a record level of occupancy to close out, you know, 2019 to, you know, March of 2020, April of 2020, we were at the lowest point ever in the history of hotels. And our hotels were, you know, next to 0% occupancy because no one was traveling. Um, so we um, faced a lot of headwinds early into the um, pandemic cycle. Um, but it did offer us a lot of opportunities across, you know, our portfolio of assets um, because and across our ability to make new investments. We became one of the biggest buyers of debt, um, distressed debt on hotel assets during the pandemic. So we bought over 180 loans against hotel assets as well as some other commercial real estate assets. We bought, you know, a bunch of hotels during the pandemic because of the distress that was in the environment. So we bought about 19 hotel assets. You know, we made about 29. You know, rescue capital type loans to different groups that needed capital to recapitalize existing hotel assets or to um, you know potentially acquire hotel assets as well. And so we made a you know bunch of direct loans as well. So we were very active on the investment side within our existing portfolio of investments. You know, early into that cycle, it was very difficult, but we were very good about asset managing around it and our hotels because generally we invest on the hotel side on the select service, limited service, extended stay side, primarily you know Marriott Hilton branded assets. Our hotels, you know, were able to recover much quicker than some of these larger full service hotels. So by the end of 2020, we were you know cash flow positive pretty much across our portfolio of assets. Um, with that said, you know, again, not all asset classes were 
impacted the same. You know, hotels obviously cap rates blew out the early part of the pandemic, whereas all these other asset classes saw this flood of capital um, come into it, like multifamily is a good example, where, you know, cap rates um, in the case of, you know, multifamily, it compressed to a historic low. And I would argue to a level that just wasn't sustainable in a normalized environment. So in a lot of cases, you saw these, you know, multifamily assets, you saw self-storage, industrial you know, all these assets compressed to levels that were sub 3%. Um, to a certain degree, you know, those assets were performing extremely well at the asset level. So I don't, you know, necessarily think from an asset performance perspective, even today for those assets, they continue to do well. But the challenge, you know, they have obviously is now we're on the, uh, you know, the other side of what's happening in the market with rates rising. And, uh, and so with hotels, you know, fortunately, we never benefited from that compression of cap rates at a meaningful level, whereas you know, a lot of these other asset classes did you know, benefit on the um, front half of the pandemic. Uh, but now, you know, with us being through the pandemic and with interest rates and, you know, inflation being the topic, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that in a minute, you know, now they're on the other side of that um, impact and having to deal with that repricing. Yeah, self-storage seems to be a world of its own. You can't drive five minutes without seeing one of those self-storage facilities. For those of us that sort of fly at 30,000 feet in some arenas, We'll talk about commercial real estate. You hear that phrase, the next shoe to drop. People point to Blackstone, their stock performance over the last year. I'm not asking you to comment on that, but clearly a lot of it has been predicated to move lower in their real estate holdings. But you're on the ground. So speak to us as to what you see right now, state of the commercial real estate market, because my sense is you're probably finding a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of opportunities. I would say for the most part from a asset level performance, most assets you no know, no different if it's hotels, multifamily, industrial self-storage, they're all doing well. There is some secular distress out there being, you know, you look at office as you mentioned, there is still a lot of office buildings that are struggling to get, you know, ramp back up occupancy levels um, because of this, you know, hybrid work model. So, you know, a lot of offices challenge today, and that's probably the one asset class along with, you know, retail or, you know, some of these malls as well are, you know, challenged to, to get tenants in there. Um, so you do have some challenges across those two asset classes. But from a macro perspective, I would say most commercial real estate assets are doing really well at the asset level. But with that said, there's a lot of balance sheet distress. And when I say balance sheet distress, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of commercial real estate assets are dealing with this whole repricing, revaluation of assets that's taking place because interest rates have moved up so quickly. Um, so they're having to, you know, deal with that impact of higher interest rates. They're having to deal with the impact of higher interest rates, you know, how it's impacting their cash flows. Um, so there's a lot of negative leverage now in the environment, especially groups that didn't appropriately hedge or they have loans that are maturing. I mean, you've got over 400 billion of commercial real estate loans maturing over the next 12 months. So you have a lot of CRE debt that's maturing. And that's creating an opportunity on the buy side to be able to buy assets at a more opportunistic level. It's also for us as an organization, it's creating where we see the, you know, the real distress opportunity today is on the direct lending side where we can go lend to groups at higher spreads. But because, you know, given all the um, you know, dislocation within the debt markets, given the fact that a lot of banks are unable to lend today, given what's what's happening 
um, just across banking, which I'm sure everybody's noticed with you know Silicon Valley Bank and the fallout of some of these other banks, it's created this huge opportunity for us to be able to lend at higher spreads, lower leverage points. So we're giving loans at you know lower, you know, at a lower loan to cost level than we were, say, even 15 months ago or even pre-pandemic. And we're getting equity-like returns without taking on that last dollar equity risk because we're going out and financing groups to acquire commercial real estate assets, to acquire and develop hotels as well. And we're financing 60, 70%. And we're able to, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, generate returns on our piece where we're getting, you know, close to 20% return. So we're getting, you know, equity-like returns without taking on that last dollar, you know, equity position. You know, we talked about the speed in which interest rates have gone up. Fed funds has gone basically from zero to 5% a year or so. Um, the last time we had a rate hiking cycle, it was, you know, years of zero rate interest rate policy, you know, years of quantitative easing. And then in 2016, the Fed started gradually raising interest rates from that zero interest rate bound to two and a half or so percent. And now obviously they came down precipitously in, in early 2020 with the pandemic. What were some of the dynamics that you saw back then in that rising interest rate environment in 17? Give us a sense of how different it is this time versus then. Yeah. So in 17, 18, as you know, as there raising rates, the pace wasn't as fast. I don't think people expected, and, and then you have the other factor, just inflation and how that's impacting the costs of stuff as well. But I don't think I don't think most groups were expecting rates to rise as quickly as they've risen. Um, so I think, unfortunately, um, that wasn't in a, you know, because this has all happened over the last 12 months. And it's, you know, it's just put a lot of stress on cash flows, not to mention, you know, we went from having effectively 0% interest rates, you know, if you think about it, to to look at, you know, where SOFR is today, um, you know, it's in the upper fours. So, you know, you've moved rates so quickly, it's just really put, you know, in a lot of cases, it's driven debt costs up, you know, 200% or more from what someone was paying, you know, 15 months ago. And, you know, it's created a lot of headwinds. It's created a lot of pressure points where, you know, unfortunately, um, you have groups that were expecting us to be in a situation where, you know, they were expecting to be able to go refinance debt, you know, at a much lower interest rate, not to mention they bought these assets with business plans that expected to be able to grow rents at a much faster pace that in a lot of cases, like you look at multifamily, you're starting to see, you know, rents um, in some cases, you know, it's starting to come down a little bit, but it's starting to stabilize out. So you're not getting that rent growth. And if you bought at a super low cap rate a couple of years ago, um, there's a very good chance rates, interest rates have risen much quicker than your actual rental growth. So you're not able to offset that higher interest cost. Let's talk a little bit. You just mentioned the opportunities for direct lending and and distressed. And, and there's a whole host of things for people like yourself, right, in this environment. And I'm just curious, though, Guy mentioned, you know, Blackstone and that B-REIT and they've had gates up and there's been a lot of demand for the capital back. Um, I think six months in a row, we saw a, a few headlines so far where there's some some short sales that are going on in the commercial real estate space that there was, I think the headline was, I think it was Blackstone out in Palo Alto or, or somewhere out there and, and, you know, taking big losses. Give, give us a sense of like, how much distress are we likely to see? Are we likely to see um, a bunch of defaults? Is uh, some of the demand for cash back from some of these reads, do you think it's just a bit panicky because what's gone on in this kind of regional banking crisis? And then let's talk a little bit about exposures that some financial institutions might have, because again, the 
deposit flight was the thing that caused the equity and these regional banks to go to zero and for the need for you know a bunch of them to go into receivership but it also seems if you just look the way guy and i do across you know the equity markets and we're looking at the the equity in, in life insurers, obviously in REITs, no shortage of, of financial institutions are getting hit and largely because uh, some of their perceived exposure to commercial real estate and what might be coming for us if rates were to stay this high for much longer. Yeah. And it's, you know, personally, I do believe, by the way, interest rates are going to stay higher for longer. So I'm a big believer that, you know, rates are staying higher or staying where we are, which is still you know, when you look at where interest rates have been historically, it's really not crazy where we are today. So, but unfortunately, we do have higher inflation. And I, I'm in the camp that inflation is going to be stickier. It's going to stay above, you know, 3%, which, you know, the Fed's targeting to be at 2%. So, unless they pivot at some point off what they're stating, you know, their goal is to get to 2%, I think it's going to be very hard for them to lower interest rates. There's going to be no catalyst for rates to drop in the near term. So I'm of the camp, unless we go through a very deep recession, interest rates will stay elevated for, you know, for an extended period of time. And what that means to me, at least going back to, you know, the original question on just the distress side, how much distress is going to be out there? You know, I do think there's still a lot of liquidity in the market. There's, you know, there's a lack of liquidity within the debt markets, which is creating that opportunity on the lending side. I think it's going to create an opportunity to buy debt from, you know, financial institutions, banks that need to um, gain some liquidity and, you know, get rid of some exposure to CRE or commercial real estate assets. Um, but more importantly, I do think there's still a lot of liquidity that's, you know, in the marketplace on the equity side that's ready to come in and start buying assets when the market is stable. And unfortunately, I think we're headed towards, you know, although rates are going to stay elevated, I think the Fed is at least starting to show signs that we're pretty much, you know, getting ready to pivot in the sense that they're probably not going to raise rates much more, if any. And so that's going to start bringing stability into the marketplace, which is a, a good thing because it will allow probably for spreads, you know, debt spreads to start to compress down, which will help to ease on the, the cost of debt. And it will be a you know, good thing to help probably just, you know, help maybe bring some uh, or at least allow values to start to come back up a little bit. But with that said, I think there's going to be a lot of secular distress in office. I mean, we're already seeing it today. I think there's a huge opportunity if you're an office investor to go buy office buildings. The question is, is, you know, is the right time to go buy now or do you wait? Because I still think it's very early into that trade, but I think that trade is going to get more and more interesting over the next you know, 12 months. And, you know, office is a very challenging asset class to invest into because it's very capital intensive. Um, so you have to be very cautious if you're going to go into that trade. But I, I think there will be a big distress trade there. From my perspective, I think we're going to be in a relatively shallow recession here shortly if we're not already in a recession. And personally believe for in a shallow recession, you know, th that means most likely, you know, multifamily assets, industrial self-storage will continue to do well. Hotels will continue to do well because um, we're continuing to recover. And there, we've got a lot of hotels have a lot of secular trends that favor demand. And you just have a lack of new supply getting built. I mean, we're at a very low point of new supply and we just have huge tailwinds to demand. And usually when you're going through an economic disruption in a normal you know recession or economic disruption period of time, hotels will have a record amount of supply getting built 
result, which exacerbates the issue. Well, it's the reverse now, not to mention there's just a, you know, a lot of pent up demand for travel, you know, given what's happened with the, you know, the pandemic and the lockdowns and so forth and just the shifting and, you know, travel schedule. So I don't expect there to be as much distress on the equity side. I think there'll be the ability to buy assets at a more opportunistic level as it relates to hotels, as it relates to, you know, multifamily and self-storage and industrial. But I don't necessarily think you're going to be buying, you know, assets in general at like, you know, pennies on the dollar by any means, because um, most assets are doing extremely well at the asset level. That response leads me down to my following question. You know, I've said, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, but if COVID had lasted a few months, I think things would have gotten back to normal on the office front. But, you know, three years into this thing, the the job market has fundamentally changed, in my opinion. So recession, no recession, that's obviously part of the equation. The other part of the equation you have to navigate is, are people going to go back to offices, period? Obviously, to a certain point, they will. But now we're talking about office space that's in large part unoccupied. How do you navigate that? What's your thought around work from home? Are we going back? What are the dynamics around that? How do you integrate that into your thesis? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've got about 240 corporate team members. You know, we've got about 3,000 team members out at the different hotels we operate and own as well. But we look at it, at least I look at it from the perspective that you've got to have the team back in the office. I mean, there's always going to be some positions that are remote or in different you know parts of the country. Um, but ultimately, it's more effective to have your team in the office People are more productive. I think you're starting to see, you know, other companies notice, and especially some of these larger companies are noticing that they need to have their team back in the office. I think the hybrid work model, some format of it will continue to exist because I think we've learned that you can allow team members, you know, some flexibility to, you know, take maybe if they have a, you know, if they have an emergency, a family emergency, they can take a couple of days off and they can effectively, you know, work from the road, but they're not going to be as productive as they would have been if they were in the office. And you can't really innovate. You don't get that competitive advantage, you know, running a company compared to your, you know, competition, unless you have your team in the office innovating, you know, talking through issues and finding a better path forward. And so I do believe as we go through this, you know, shallow recession, I think it's going to be a a very pivotal moment where I do think that's going to help office start to recover some, where people are going to realize that, you know, they can't allow for, you know, for the team to be out of the office for two, three days a week, they need the team in, but they can be flexible for, you know, for emergencies or for certain types of situations. I'm assuming that a lot of your investment properties uh, on the hotel front are here, uh, you know, in the U.S. And there was a lot of optimism at the start of the year about China's, you know, shift from zero COVID um, and reopening their economy. And I, I know that there was a lot of analysts and strategists in general who were just saying that the Chinese are likely to follow a path that U.S. consumers and European consumers did when they were locked up, they were buying a lot of hard goods, right? That was the only thing to really spend on. But as soon as that things opened up, they were out there at restaurants and traveling and hotels and concerts and movies and, you know, all the like here. Give us a sense of what you're seeing. Maybe it has to do with occupancy rates year over year. Maybe here in the U.S., are you seeing demand from, you know, foreign travelers, maybe specifically from Chinese in general? Because those are the sorts of inputs, I think, that like our listeners and and Guy and myself, when we're, you know, doing a lot of our commentary, 
commentary on our shows are, I think, really interested in, right? Because I think a lot of people are starting to get a sense, okay, with, you know, unemployment where it is right here in the U.S., that's probably very near a bottom. Inflation still fairly high. You know, credit and, and consumer debt have, have gone up dramatically, right? So maybe the U.S. consumer is starting to wane a bit, and especially if we're starting to see, let's say, you know, or like, as you just said, we might already be in that shallow recession. And we know that once a shallow recession starts, and we won't know until after it starts, it has the potential to get worse, right? Like, so, um, uh, and I'm just curious, do you think that foreigners have the potential, at least in the hospitality sector, to pick up some of that slack as we head into the summer season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you're going to see in a lot of our assets, fortunately, are not in the primary markets because the primary markets, you know, like New York, San Francisco, LA, they, they really feed off of that, you know, international traveler. So if it's, you know, the traveler coming from China or from wherever, um, but you are starting to see that recovery of that traveler. And I think that's only going to grow as the year goes on. Um, so I think that, you know, that is something that is continuing to to come back. And that's a, another catalyst just for the recovery of lodging because you look across you know, you look across the U.S. at all hotels today, we're, you know, pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels, you know, across our portfolio of the hundred hotels that we own and operate, you know, we're basically back to where we were from an occupancy perspective, but we're up huge on the average daily rates because hotels are able to reprice daily. We're getting the benefit of the, you know, the inflation that's been in the environment. So our rates are up considerably from where we were pre-pandemic, you know, on average, we're up, you know, 20, 25% from pre-pandemic levels. And so, you know, hotels are more profitable, but we also have a huge demand surge when we look on afford booking. And a lot of that is, you know, the benefit of the international travelers, as you mentioned, it's also the benefit of, because another discussion that's been, people have been talking about is, you know, and we've talked about today is just offices are, you know, challenge, but as offices start to reopen and, you know, most offices have reopened at some level at this point, but now all of a sudden you're seeing companies require people to be back in the office for five days a week or four days a week. And as that starts to happen, that actually increases corporate travel because when an office is only open maybe for three days a week or it's not open or doesn't require anyone to be in the office, then there's no reason for someone to travel to to these corporate offices to visit or to try to sell them products because no one's at that office to, to meet with. So that's um, that's starting to help be another catalyst just for business and corporate travel as well. Greg, for our listeners and for the folks, you know, on the different websites, how can they find you? How can they find Peachtree? You know, talk about the value prop that you're offering. And just in general, if people are interested, how do they find you and reach out? Sure. I mean, the the best way to find us is, you know, go to our website. It's, you know, peachtreehotelgroup.com. You can always, you know, reach out to me via email as well. Um, my email address, I think, is on the website, but it's gfriedman at peachtreehotelgroup.com. And we, you know, love to, you know, love to talk to anyone that has interest in learning more about, you know, what we do on the investment side, as well as what we, you know, the different, you know, ways that we could finance groups or help groups, you know, through this challenging period of time as well. It's a fascinating period of time for you without question. I'm sure you're probably as busy as you've been in quite some time and just sort of navigating uh, this arena. You want people that have done it for quite some time and have a laundry list and a huge transaction list of deals uh, on their resume. And you are clearly that person. So I want to thank you for joining us on the tape. Yeah. Thank you for having me and, and definitely reach out anytime. 
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.